of explicitly asserting or implying that atheists can't really have objective morals and then not really even bothering to engage with or even attempt to debunk or really even acknowledge the existence of these systems of objective morality that atheists can adhere to, in fact that many theists adhere to as well. I just wish that if Christian apologists are going to go around saying, oh atheists can't have objective morals or you know, I challenge you to try to establish that morality is objective in your atheistic worldview, can you at least acknowledge the existence of these systems and theories? Christian apologists just assert it as a fact often, including people like William Lane Craig, that if God doesn't exist, then objective morals don't exist. They don't even acknowledge moral naturalism or moral non-naturalism and say, oh, well, here's why those things fail. If you're going to run around saying that, then you have to try to argue against, you know, for instance, moral naturalism and moral non-naturalism. Welcome everyone, I'm your host, Emerson Green, and today we're responding to a video from Trent Horn called Five Atheist Double Standards. I have no doubt that Trent has interacted with many atheists who make the mistakes that he identifies, but I don't think I do or many of my atheist comrades do either. He even names a few of them at the beginning of the video. The bigger problem is that some of these mistakes he identifies are not really mistakes and he does commit a few errors of his own. I think there's a lot to agree with and a lot to disagree with. I just think it's worth hashing out further. And just to be clear, I have no allegiance to atheism as a tribe. I will happily call out atheists who are wrong, and I'll link arms with Catholic apologists like Trent in doing so. So let's get started. Hey guys, welcome to the Council of Trent podcast. I'm your host, Catholic Answers apologist and speaker, Trent Horn. And today I want to talk about five atheist double standards. Now, I bring this up not to pick on atheists, but to raise the level of discourse. In fact, there are a lot of atheists online, people like the Real Atheology Crew, uh, Majesty of Reason, people who want to raise the level of discourse. Well, Real Atheology or Atheist, Majesty of Reason is more agnostic. But my point is that they also call out double standards. I've really seen other people like Scott Clifton, for example, he'll call out other atheists. I love it also when I see atheists online that I enjoy interacting with, when they call out other atheists for engaging in uh, arguments that have logical fallacies or for using double standards, the atheists they call out will say, you're just a Christian, you believe in a magical sky daddy. And they'll say, dude, I'm an atheist too, but I just don't use these bad arguments. And I feel the same way. I find there are Catholics who will use really bad arguments. And I want to say to them, hey, don't use these really bad arguments. We should put forward the best arguments on either side so that we can all raise a level of discourse. That would be a good thing to do, right? So that's just what I want to talk about today. Five atheist double standards. Not saying every atheist does this. In fact, there are atheists I know who would say, yeah, definitely don't do these things. So let's start with the first one. Number one is the ancient document double standard. This is the idea that the Bible is treated as guilty until proven innocent. That the Bible is just different than any other kind of ancient literature. For example, if someone says, well, how do you know Jesus did this or that? to say, well, the Bible says, oh, the Bible, the Bible says, they'll say things like, you can't use the Bible to prove the Bible. Now, in a sense, that's true. Like, you can't just use the Bible as a human document to say the Bible says God exists, the Bible is the word of God, therefore God exists, or the Bible says it's the word of God, therefore it's the word of God. 
right? That's a circular argument. You can't do that. So I see where they're coming from. If they mean you can't use the Bible to prove the Bible in a circular argument, yeah, they're right. But to say you can't use the Bible even to prove mundane historical facts, like that Jesus existed, Jesus called 12 disciples, he had a reputation for being a faith healer in Jerusalem and Galilee, he was crucified, people claimed to have seen Jesus after his crucifixion. There's really no disagreement for me on this basic point. I mean, the Bible is a collection of ancient historical documents, and I think anyone who is a fan of Bart Ehrman or Dale Allison, you know, they value their work and they treat them as good faith actors and read their books and consider their arguments. No one who values the work of Bart Ehrman or Dale Allison has this problem. So I suppose Trent is mainly talking about mythicists right now or people who are kind of adjacent to that community. I'm not a mythicist. I just defer to, I, I don't know anything about history. So I just defer to Bart Ehrman and Dale Allison about most of these issues. Philosophy of religion is more my thing than biblical scholarship or early Christian history or anything like that. So I've got one Christian go-to guy and I've got one agnostic, maybe atheist go-to guy. And yeah, it's not like I'm uncommon among atheists, you know, lots and lots of atheists like Bart Ehrman. If you're at all familiar with his work, then obviously this is not a problem that he suffers from. He treats the Bible as a disparate collection of ancient historical documents that gives us information about what happened. You know, I mean, he's a historian. He pours over these sources and makes arguments based on the things that we can glean from them. All right, here's double standard number two, saying that God is evil, but then saying there is no such thing as evil. So the way he presents this, there's obviously a double standard because the hypothetical atheist is saying that God is evil, and then they're saying nothing is evil. Nothing is evil, no one is evil, uh, nothing is wrong, nothing is morally bad, and then you're saying all those things about God. Okay, well, yeah, that makes sense. But then he goes on to describe the problem of evil, which is completely different from what I just said. And even on its own terms, his critique only applies to moral anti-realists. It only applies to people who say, there is no evil, nothing is evil. And then they turn around and say, oh, God is evil. Yeah, obviously that's a problem. And I, I again, I don't doubt that there are some atheists who do this kind of thing. It wouldn't surprise me if moral nihilists contradicted themselves. Moral nihilists are generally very confused people. But what if I'm a moral realist? And I guess this just wouldn't apply to me on his own terms. So that's one problem. Another problem is that he just starts describing the problem of evil to support his point. You know, the clip I'm about to play, he just starts describing the evolutionary argument from evil. And he's like, oh, how can you, how can you say this if, you say, if you're a moral nihilist? And even if you're a moral nihilist, you can run the problem of evil. Regardless, that's distinct from the first point, you know, the supposed double standard. So we'll get more into that in a moment, but the third problem is that later on in this section, he starts criticizing moral realists who, even on his own terms, have no issue with this double standard. But he instead just identifies a new double standard that moral realists commit, which is totally different from this other one that he's talking about. But this whole section is kind of muddled because it, at first it sounds like he's saying, I'm only criticizing atheists who are trying to simultaneously hold that moral realism is true and not true. But then he goes on to describe the problem of evil, which is totally not the same thing. And then he pivots to a different complaint about moral realists having a completely different double standard, which I've never seen the double standard that he, you know, tries to pin on moral realists. But, you know, we'll save that for when we get there. All right, here's double standard number two. Saying that God is evil, but then saying there is no such thing as evil. I want to share with you two quotes from Richard Dawkins, the author of The God Delusion. 
Here's the first quote about the Bible. So Dawkins writes, The God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all fiction, jealous and proud of it, a petty, unjust, unforgiving control freak, a vindictive, bloodthirsty ethnic cleanser, a misogynistic, homophobic, racist, infanticidal, genocidal, filicidal, pestilential, megalomaniacal, sadomasochistic, capriciously malevolent bully. In other words, Richard Dawkins says, the God of the Bible is evil, as if that's a, it's a fact. The God of the Bible is evil. Not just Dawkins' opinion of the matter, because Christians would say, no, he's not evil. He's the greatest thing since sliced bread. He would say, what are you talking about? Just read the things that God has done in the Bible. Clearly, he is evil because he has done things that are objectively evil. Uh, ethnic cleansing, killing of infants, uh, things like that. These things, it's just a fact that they're evil. But then here's another quote from Richard Dawkins. The universe that we observe has precisely the properties we should expect if there is, at bottom, no design, no purpose, no evil, no good, nothing but pitiless indifference. So on the one hand, it's just a fact that God is evil because he does evil things. But on the other hand, if these actions take place in the universe, like someone uh, committing genocide or committing infanticide, this isn't evil. If God does not exist and infants are killed or entire races are wiped out, that's just nature. That's just atoms in motion. Uh, it's nothing but pitiless indifference we see in the universe. No evil, no good. Uh, we live in a materialist universe. So you see here the, the double standard. Um, no, no, I don't see the double standard here. <laughs> you can run the problem of evil without being a moral realist. I mean, I happen to be a moral realist, so it's easier for me, I guess. But, you know, you don't have to be. You could be a moral nihilist and run the problem of evil. Because the problem of evil, as I understand it, is about what you would expect to be true if God existed. If the foundation of reality is a perfect being, a perfectly loving being, what would you expect to be true? And, comparatively, what would you expect to be true if the foundation of reality were totally indifferent to good and evil or value or disvalue? That's the point Dawkins was making there. He was saying evolutionary history in the biological realm looks like what you would expect it to look like if nature were just indifferent to good and evil and the suffering of sentient creatures and value and disvalue. Look at the quote that he read. The universe that we observe has precisely the properties we should expect if there is, at bottom, no design, no purpose, no evil, no good, nothing but pitiless indifference. That's the same way that atheist philosophers of religion argue, you know, like Paul Draper. So is there a double standard involved in pointing out that the hypothesis of indifference arguably does a better job predicting the data that we observe in the world on the one hand, and then on the other hand, saying that genocide is wrong? I mean, no. <laughs> like, what? I, I truly don't even know what the double standard is supposed to be here. Like, the quote that he pulls from Dawkins, the first one, is that the God of the Old Testament is, quote-unquote, the most unpleasant character in all fiction. Anyone could say that. You don't have to be a moral realist to say someone is unpleasant. But even if we read Dawkins to be making a statement, you know, God is objectively morally bad, you know, as he's depicted in the Old Testament— how is that in conflict with saying that if fundamental reality is indifferent to good and evil and the suffering of sentient beings, then this is about what you would expect. There's no double standard. There's no conflict. I mean, unless you're really bending over backwards to be uncharitable, um, I really don't see what the problem is here. You know, do you look out at nature? Do you look out at predation and disease 
in parasitism? Do you look out at flesh-eating bacteria and say, you know, intuitively, I think that the foundation of all of this is a perfect being. Like that thought would just never occur to you if you were just looking out at the biological realm. You would never draw the connection between an optimal designer who's perfectly loving and perfectly good and what you're seeing. But if you think, oh, you know, this all came about primarily through evolution by natural selection, which is a totally indifferent process, then yeah, that makes sense of a lot of things we see, not just the kind of suffering we see or the degree of suffering that we see, but the distribution of suffering we see, you know, like pain and pleasure seem to be correlated with biological goals. The natural world, you know, especially if we include non-human animals, seems morally random. It doesn't seem like this is all oriented to encourage our moral or spiritual or intellectual development. Something like the soul-building theodicy sounds nice in the abstract, but it just doesn't seem to apply to the world that we live in. So you see here the, the double standard of quickly wanting to say it's a fact that God is evil or Christians are evil. But then when we talk about the universe itself, we can't say certain things are objectively good or objectively evil, because then we would ask, well, what is evil? One definition of evil that I like is something is evil when it's not the way it is supposed to be. You can't just say, well, evil is suffering. Okay, well, there can be suffering that's not evil. Like, when a like if you a dentist drills a cavity, that's not evil. It's a good thing he's doing to help me, even though it hurts. And people can commit evil acts without causing suffering. I've asked atheists, is it evil for someone to fantasize about molesting children if he never acts on it? And a lot of them have said, no, it's not evil. They've said, you can't have evil if there's no suffering. And I, I would say, no, most, of, most people would think those are evil thoughts. So that, that's not right. I think the people who you're interacting with are hedonic act utilitarians, whether or not they would identify themselves that way. Plenty of atheists are capable of saying that, you know, being a pedophile is something that's wrong, even if you never act on it. Um, it's obviously better if you don't act on it, right? I mean, I don't know what Trent thinks. I mean, I know some Christians who argue that thinking the thoughts is the same thing as, as doing it. They try to glean that from what Jesus said. Not every Christian adheres to that idea, but hopefully your Christian views don't diminish the boundary between thinking about something and actually doing it. Depending on your normative ethical view, maybe thinking about something is wrong, maybe it's not. Um, maybe it's wrong because it would predictably lead to worse consequences. I don't know. But I mean, there are different normative ethical theories like utilitarianism or deontology or virtue ethics or natural law theory. And I don't really see why atheists couldn't adhere to any of those options. I mean, there are certainly atheistic versions of all those normative theories. Utilitarianism is obviously more popular among atheists, but I know Christian utilitarians, I know atheist non-utilitarians. How these things break down, I, I don't think there's some kind of essential connection between atheism and utilitarianism. But the reason I stopped the video here is just because I wanted to say that atheists can adhere to pretty much any normative ethical theory that they choose. But if evil are just the way things are not supposed to be, and goodness are the way things are supposed to be, that assumes a lot of teleology or a goal or purpose of the universe that makes sense under theism, but not under atheism. Well, see, even that I have to dispute because um, atheists can believe in teleology. And even though Aristotle was not an atheist, you know, his teleology was not connected to theism. Thomas Nagel, an atheist, has played a small part in resurrecting the idea of natural teleology. I mean, Trent knows a lot more about Aristotle than I do. I'm like pretty new to even reading about Aristotle. But from what I understand, 
Aristotelian teleology is not really connected to theism. It's not really connected to belief in God. You could believe in something like the Aristotelian view here and believe that there's teleology in nature, not just like apparent teleology, but real teleology, like real genuine function in nature. And you could step on either side of the theism-atheism divide. And it's not like this is unique to Trent or anything, you know, like most people in the modern world don't see how you could have teleology without God. And that's part of why Thomas Nagel's book, Mind and Cosmos, was not very well understood. But setting that aside, I, I mean, this is true of so many things. Like, atheists can affirm the existence of a metaphysical necessity at the foundation of reality. Atheists can believe in libertarian free will. Atheists can be moral realists. Atheists can be non-physicalists. And atheists can believe in natural teleology. It's a sociological fact that many, if not most, atheists don't believe in those things. But it's not like there's a logical connection between God probably doesn't exist and all the other ideas that we're talking about here. Now, some people might say when the problem of evil comes up, they'll say, look, this is just an internal critique. I'm just saying that you as a Christian, you believe in good and evil. You believe in objective good and objective evil. Well, guess what? Under your standards, God is evil. All right. So even under your standards, he's evil, even though I don't believe in good and evil. Now, I think that this option is put forward when the double standard is pointed out, because I don't think Richard Dawkins is saying Christians should believe that God is evil. He's just saying that it is a fact that God is evil. But more problematic is that if this is an internal critique, uh, when atheists propose this, I can come back and say, all right, well, you're saying, you're not saying God is evil. You're just saying my worldview is inconsistent. That if I'm saying these actions are evil, and God does them, that would make God evil as well. I could just say, well, when God performs certain actions, it's not evil for God. It's not inconsistent. He seems to just be wholeheartedly embracing the idea that if God does it, it's not wrong. He goes on to establish some kind of moral principle, you know, like, oh, well, God gave you life so he can take it away. Um, that seems like a dubious moral principle to me. Like, my parents gave me life. I don't think they have the right to kill me. It might be wrong for me to kill someone because I didn't give them their life. I'm not the author of life like God is, but God created the whole universe. He created everyone and he has the right to give us as long or as little life as he desires because he is the author of life. So I don't know if Trent actually thinks that if you give someone life, you have the right to take it away. He might just be responding to these atheists who are saying, you know, this is an internal critique. God doesn't even follow his own rules. So he's not taking a full-on might-makes-right posture, which kind of sounded like what he might have been doing earlier. But it's not just the taking of life that I think these atheists have in mind. You know, it's also the lying and the deception. Or if you want a degree of separation, you know, sending lying and deceptive spirits. God appears to engage in deception, directly or indirectly. So arguably they could be talking about other double standards as well. Regardless, this doesn't really seem like a problem for me. It seems like as a moral realist, I can just say that God does behave immorally in the Old Testament. I, I just have no issue with that because I don't say things like nothing is right or nothing is wrong or nothing is evil. Presumably genocide is wrong and yet God commands genocide. So I don't know the details of all of Trent's views. I don't know if he's some kind of divine command theorist. Of the Catholics I know, none of them are divine command theorists. So I don't know if Trent is just saying, here's what a Christian could say in response to these atheists. In any event, I think it's worth addressing divine command theory, at least briefly. I think divine command theory suffers from a few problems. I mean, the Euthyphro dilemma famously, like, does God have moral reasons for issuing these commands? 
or if you want to push it a step back, are there moral reasons why God's nature is the way that it is? Or are there no moral reasons behind God's commands or behind God's nature? If there are moral reasons, then that means that moral reasons exist independently of God, and divine command theory is false. If there are no moral reasons behind God's commands or his nature, then his commands are just morally arbitrary. Another problem with divine command theory is that it's arguably a form of moral subjectivism, because moral truths constitutively depend on God, on, you know, his states. Another wrinkle to this is that people like Craig are divine command theorists, which is a form of moral subjectivism, which is some, one of their big boogeymen, like, oh no, moral subjectivism, you know, cultural relativism. And then they buy into this idea where morals constitutively depend on this subject. You know, so it's, it's not a normal form of subjectivism, but they think that morals are grounded in the, you know, attitudes, opinions, feelings, whatever, of this subject, God. You know, that's what morals are. And if you get rid of God, then there are no morals. Um, I'm not a moral subjectivist. I believe that morality is objective. So unlike divine command theorists, I believe in, I believe that morality is objective. So to explain that, let me read from Michael Humer's book, Ethical Intuitionism. If we're going to say that divine command theory is a form of subjectivism, we should probably explain what we mean by objective and subjective. As humor defines it, something is subjective if it constitutively depends, at least in part, on the psychological attitude or response that observers have or would have towards that thing. An objective feature is one that is not subjective. So as contrasted with something subjective like funniness, squareness is objective. To be a square, a figure just has to have four equal sides and equal angles. No one has to feel any way about it, think anything about it, or even see it. And since there are multiple usages of subjective, he clarifies here what he doesn't mean by it. For instance, happiness is not subjective in the sense that he intends. Quote, whether a person is happy depends on the attitudes of someone, namely the person himself, but it does not depend on the attitudes of observers towards him. Whether you are happy does not depend on how someone observing you feels. Constitutive dependence is another important part of the definition, as contrasted with causal dependence. So he gives this example of the placebo effect and how having a good attitude can improve your health outcomes if you're suffering from a disease. He then asks, should we then say that a given individual's recovery or non-recovery from the disease is subjective because whether he recovers depends on whether he believes he will? No, that is a case of causal dependence. The patient's positive attitude causes his recovery, not constitutive dependence. A subjective property is one that is at least partly constituted by its tendency to elicit a certain reaction from observers. In other words, if f-ness is subjective, then part of what it is for a thing to be f is for observers to have or be disposed to have some particular sort of reaction to it. So with those definitions of subjective and objective in mind, he defines subjectivism as the view that moral properties are subjective in the sense just defined, for a thing to be good is for some individual or group to be disposed to take some attitude towards it. Other forms of subjectivism substitute other attitudes for approval in other persons or groups for the speaker. Thus, the view that to be good is to be approved of by society is a form of subjectivism, as is the view that to be obligatory is to be commanded by God. So, yeah, I mean, I can imagine certain divine command theorists objecting to certain words that were used, but I think we can just substitute some of those terms so that they would be happy with it and the basic point would be the same. And, I mean, the other snag here is what God is supposed to be. I mean, if you're some kind of theistic personalist, then... I don't think it's controversial at all that this is a form of subjectivism. You know, if God is a conscious being, 
with mental states, then it seems pretty obvious that rightness and wrongness constitutively depend on this particular observer. You know, that's what makes a particular action right or wrong. So maybe those who reject theistic personalism would have an easier time getting out of this, but I still kind of suspect that we could rephrase things in a way that they would be happy with, where this sort of observation would still hold. But once again, if you are some kind of theistic personalist, then I don't think this is even controversial that divine command theory is just a weird form of moral subjectivism. So I'm not going to make arguments against subjectivism right now, but the point of this is not just to paint divine command theory in a negative light and say, like, oh, this is a form of subjectivism. Doesn't that sound bad? I will admit that it is kind of fun because this is one of the boogeymen for, you know, evangelicals and apologists, you know, subjectivism and relativism. So lumping in their preferred moral theory with those and being able to back that up is kind of ironic. So it's funny, but the point really for bringing it up is that there are good arguments against subjectivism. So if divine command theory is a form of subjectivism, then we can level some pretty powerful arguments against it. But the point is not just to smear divine command theory and say, oh, this is a form of subjectivism, even though it is very funny to me. The real point for bringing it up is just saying, look, this view might suffer from further problems other than the Euthyphro dilemma because subjectivism is riddled with problems. So ultimately, I'd say they do believe in moral uh, law. Many will believe in objective morality, objective good, objective evil. They'll believe in that when they are offended by something God did in the Bible or something that a Christian has done. And so they'll, they'll, they'll just factually say something is good and something is evil. But then when pressed to define good and evil and explain the source of these objective moral norms, uh, it becomes a lot more problematic. Now, if Trent were here, I could ask for clarification, but, you know, maybe Trent is getting at something that we would both agree on, which is that moral anti-realists cannot intelligibly make certain statements. So maybe we're just talking past each other and, you know, we're, we're not properly communicating and, and maybe we're more on the same page than it might seem. And I guess I would just point out that, like, even if you think Trent is totally right about this double standard, couldn't you get out of it just by being a moral realist? You know, so isn't this only directed at moral anti-realists? Even if you think I'm wrong about everything I've said up to this point, and you think Trent was dead on, couldn't I just get out of it by being a moral realist, which I am, and many other atheists are as well? I think that there are objectively right and wrong answers to moral questions, you know, so does Sam Harris. This is not exactly like a fringe position in the atheist community, but he still issues this challenge of like, how do you establish your objective morals? First of all, are you only a moral realist when it's convenient, you know, when you're criticizing God? and Okay, like once again, this doesn't really apply to me because I'm a moral realist uh, seven days a week. And this is a bit of a pet peeve of mine with Christian apologists. Trent didn't do it here, but he got right up to the edge there of explicitly asserting or implying that atheists can't really have objective morals and then not really even bothering to engage with or even attempt to debunk or really even acknowledge the existence of these systems of objective morality that atheists can adhere to, in fact that many theists adhere to as well, you know, for instance moral naturalism and moral non-naturalism. I'm a moral non-naturalist, I'll be bringing on Michael Humer soon, um, depending on when this video comes out it might have already happened. We'll be speaking about ethical intuitionism, which is the thesis of ethical non-naturalism combined with phenomenal conservatism. So it's like an epistemic thesis and a metaphysical thesis. But Humor is an atheist, and you know many people are persuaded by his account. And even some who aren't persuaded by his account are still moral non-naturalists. 
and even some who don't like moral non-naturalism at all are still moral naturalists, you know? So I just wish that if Christian apologists are going to go around saying, oh, atheists can't have objective morals, or, you know, I challenge you to try to establish that morality is objective in your atheistic worldview, can you at least acknowledge the existence of these systems and theories? Like, people have spent a lot of time talking about this, and Christian apologists just assert it as a fact often, including people like William Lane Craig, that if God doesn't exist, then objective morals don't exist. And then they rarely, at least in their popular work, try to explain why that is. They don't even acknowledge moral naturalism or moral non-naturalism and say, oh, well, here's why those things fail. If you're going to run around saying that, then you have to try to argue against phenomenal conservatism and moral non-naturalism in my case. So once again, if you want to hear more about that, I will be speaking to Michael Humer soon about ethical intuitionism, though by no means is that the only way that atheists can have objective morals. I want to share with you also a quote from Luke. I think his name is Luke Muehlhauser. I don't know if he's written on atheism in a while. He had a really good website called Common Sense Atheism. Uh, I remember reading it long, long time ago, probably like 10 years ago, and wrote a lot on philosophy of religion, apologetics. And he talks about how atheists uh, ridicule religious people for believing in God because it just seems like God exists while also believing in moral realism or the idea that moral truths, uh, you know, that uh, raping people is always evil. Like that's just an objective fact uh, that these moral truths, they just exist out there. They're a part of the universe and believe that for atheists who believe in moral realism, some of them can be inconsistent or have a double standard in this regard. I'm going to read to you uh, what he wrote. I found this really fascinating. He writes, Many atheists seem to think moral realism is obvious and easy to prove. I disagree. Consider the claim we moral realists are making. We generally claim there are invisible properties in the world not detectable by our usual tools of science, properties of an entirely different sort than the usual is facts of science. There are mysterious ought facts, and there is great disagreement about what they are or how we know them. Now that is a strong claim, an extraordinary claim we might say. And extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence, right? He then goes on to point out the double standard. He says, do those arguments look familiar? They should. They are the exact same arguments atheists reject when they are given for the existence of God. Atheists are skeptical of these arguments when given for the existence of God, but they are credulous and gullible towards these arguments when you replace the word God with another mysterious thing called moral truths. It would be hypocritical of me to reject subjective experience and popular consensus as evidence for God, while at the same time accepting subjective experience and popular consensus as evidence for moral realism. This is one of those mistakes that I definitely don't make. I mean, if you saw my devil's advocate debate um, with Kyle Allender, Christian idealism, I made this very argument, <laughs> like I said, that religious experience is actually evidence for God. I said that widespread theistic belief is evidence for God. I don't have any kind of double standard when it comes to intuition or subjective experiences, but, you know, a lot of people just misunderstand the kind of phenomenal conservatism that can make those sorts of arguments work. Phenomenal conservatism is just the idea that if it seems to you that something is the case, then you're rational in taking things as they seem until someone gives you an undercutting or rebutting defeater. So until someone's given you a good reason to think otherwise, you're rational in accepting the world as it appears. 
it does not mean that you accept every appearance uncritically. It, it doesn't mean that just take the world as it appears, end of story. There's still a place for argumentation, for evidence, for reason. You know, all these things are ultimately going to find their basis in intuition and in seemings or appearances. But that doesn't mean that the initial seemings or the initial appearances can't be overturned by good arguments. That would be crazy, and that's not phenomenal conservatism. So in the case of moral realism, yeah, ultimately moral intuitions do form the basis of our moral judgments, just in the same way that mathematical intuitions ultimately form the basis for our mathematical judgments. But there are plenty of seemings and appearances that you shouldn't trust. You can make arguments that are successful that you shouldn't trust them. You can provide evidence that you shouldn't trust them. You know, not all seemings or appearances are equal. Some of them are sort of more certain than others, and some of them are easier to undermine with arguments than others. Anyway, I think the arguments for moral anti-realism are pretty bad. I don't think that they defeat the initial seeming that some things are right and some things are wrong. I think the Holocaust was bad. <laughs> I think um, that's as certain as the Holocaust happened. You know, like that it happened and that it was bad. I think those are pretty indisputable. And, uh, you know, I think that moral anti-realists just have really credulity straining stories about how it is the case that they're allowed to make these evaluative judgments that the Holocaust was bad without actually meaning it. And uh, yeah, I mean, I just don't buy it. I think their arguments are not very good. I think the arguments for moral realism are better. And moral realism obviously starts off with the advantage because it just appears that some things are right and other things are wrong and that this isn't dependent on, uh, you know, the culture that you were brought up in or something like that. You know, even if the Nazis won the war, it still would have been wrong to kill six million people. So it's not that I lower the bar for moral truths and raise the bar for God. It's that there's evidence against God. There are arguments against theism that are pretty good. There are not good arguments against moral realism. You can dislodge the way things appear at first with defeaters. Okay, so I think that there are good arguments against theism. There are not good arguments against moral realism. Though, of course, I would concede that most people just kind of intuitively think that God exists. It just seems to them that God exists. I don't say that's illegitimate. I defended that in my devil's advocate debate for theism. So I don't think I'm being quote-unquote credulous and gullible towards these arguments when you replace the word God with another mysterious thing called moral truths. I think that's not the case. And I'm also, well, here's the thing. I agree it would be hypocritical to reject subjective experience and popular consensus as evidence for God, while at the same time accepting subjective experience and popular consensus as evidence for moral realism. Yeah, it, okay, a hypothetical person who does that is being hypocritical. Yes, but I don't do that. And all the moral realists that I know don't do that either. Oh, I bet these moral realists are completely credulous when it comes to this and then have the exact opposite standard when it comes to that. Yeah, or maybe they think there are defeaters for one and not really good defeaters for the other. Or some people will make this other mistake like, well, some of our intuitions aren't reliable. We can show that some of our intuitions uh, are mistaken. So we can't trust intuitions. Many people get trapped in this black and white approach to things where if you point out that intuitions are unreliable or that seemings or appearances can be deceptive, then we just have to throw them all out. Yes, some intuitions are more reliable than other intuitions. Some seemings have really powerful defeaters, but I think that something like moral realism is true whether or not God exists. Like, I'm comparatively more certain in the truth of moral realism than I am that God doesn't exist, and I know other theists, you know, who <laughs> would make similar assessments, like John Buck said on this channel um, a couple weeks ago, 
that he's more certain that he has free will than he is that uh, God exists or that the Catholic Church is correct or something like that. So once again, I just don't think there's a double standard here. I, I don't even think this is like a, you know, because before I was saying, well, I'm sure that there are many, many atheists. Actually, I know there are many atheists who do commit this kind of double standard, but who are the atheists who commit this double standard? Who are like, yes, I'm a phenomenal conservative. Yes, I'm a moral non-naturalist. And no, um, you know, phenomenal conservatism provides no help whatsoever to theists who have religious experiences. Like, humor admits that. Like, every atheist I know who's sympathetic to phenomenal conservatism admits that. Who is committing this double standard? All right, here's double standard number three. Bad Christians are evidence against Christianity. Bad atheists don't prove anything. I used to read the Pathios blog, the Atheism Pathios blog, before it became the Atheism Pathios non-religious blog. I would go there and try to find different arguments or reflections, and it was interesting. It was interesting to look at. But I eventually got sick of it because on a lot of these atheistic blogs, they got really repetitive. Most of the entries were, look at this bad Christian who stole money from his church. Look at this bad Christian who molested people. This bad Christian, that bad Christian. Okay, well, if there's tens of millions of Christians, you're bound to find some that are, that are hypocrites or that have moral failings. But it's really hard to find a hypocritical atheist. The only kind of hip, because what atheists will say, if, you, if I point out a bad atheist, you'll say, well, what about that scandal a few years ago about atheistic conferences having to make the attendees sign statements promising they won't sexually harass the women there? Uh, because that was a really big problem in atheist conferences. I've never had to sign anything like that at a Christian conference, but apparently that was a big problem at atheist conferences a while back. People say, well, that's not hypocrisy because atheism doesn't say anything about morality. It doesn't say anything about how people will behave. It just says there's no reason to believe God exists. So yeah, it's, it's hard. I would rather be a Christian who fails in Christian morality than be a non-hypocritical atheist because atheism doesn't have any particular moral stances. You could be a humanist, you could be a nihilist. There's all different kinds of, of atheists in, in that regard. So I just think it's, you know, it's not very fair to want to point out, here are these bad Christians. Obviously, that shows that Christianity is bad. Well, there are also bad atheists. Can you make an argument? And I wouldn't use that to try to show there's an argument that atheism is bad. Uh, just there's going to be bad people in every kind of belief system. In certain dialectical contexts, this does make sense to bring up. Now, just out of the blue, this is not how I would make the case for atheism. I wouldn't just sit down and, and lead with this kind of thing. But I can imagine plenty of circumstances that many atheists will eventually find themselves in if they talk about this, where this kind of stuff, of course, it makes sense to bring it up. You know, it just it depends on the claim that was made by the Christian prior to them bringing up these examples of meager moral fruits. Now, the only time I'm willing to tolerate something that resembles this double standard would be if an atheist argued this way. Look, if Christianity were true, we would expect people to be moved by grace uh, to be good and not commit uh, grievous uh, sins. But if atheism is true, we would not expect atheists to have any kind of grace or supernatural help to be more moral than other people. So it's okay to point out immoral Christians, but not immoral atheists. So if it is at least phrased this way, okay, I see where you're coming from. He concedes that the meager moral fruits argument is a good argument, or he at least concedes that it's, you know, it's not just like a double standard or something. Like, you know, it's an argument that needs a discussion. Christianity seems to explicitly predict that Christians will be distinguishable from non-Christians. And in contexts outside of this, Christians are happy to admit that this is the case. But as soon as you start making this argument, suddenly they start backpedaling and saying, oh, why would you expect Christians to be better than non-Christians? Well, because of Christian theology and because of Christian doctrine and because of what you say in other contexts. 
And Trent is actually good about this. Like I've heard Trent say like, yeah, people shouldn't try to weasel out of the theological premise of the meager moral fruits argument. Of course, we're supposed to be different. Of, sport, of course, we're supposed to be better. So the meager moral fruits argument is just like any other argument. It says, here's what you would expect to see if Christianity were true. And here's what you would expect to see if Christianity were not true. What we seem to observe aligns more with what atheists would predict over what Christians would predict. I mean, that's the argument. It's not some kind of weird deviation from every other atheist argument. He mentions that there was some kind of sexual harassment scandal at atheist conferences, and that's true. And the reason that was brought to light and the reason that that, that that thing had to be signed was because of other atheists who were concerned. There's a lot more to that story, I would add. I would also point out that atheists tend to be more liberal and, and Christians tend to be more conservative. So I've been to Christian gatherings where you do have to sign something that says you won't do this, that, or the other thing. Um, I don't think it means that there's like a big problem with it. I just think it's an expression of the values of that group you know, like I know people who have had to sign, like in order to get into Christian colleges, they've had to pledge that they won't like dance in an erotic fashion. <laughs> so does that mean that there's just this epidemic of like erotic dancing at Christian colleges? No, I think it's just an expression of the values of that institution. And I'm not trying to say that there's no issue with sexual harassment or there was no issue at these atheist conferences, but let's try to compare this to like the meager moral fruits argument. You know, is this an argument against atheism? Like does atheism predict that there would be less sexual harassment at atheist conferences than at Christian conferences? I don't see how. Um, I will grant though quickly that like if Christians were better than atheists in a way that was just totally undeniable. Like everyone just kind of knew like, yeah, obviously Christians are very uniquely good people. They've got this reputation. Then of course that would be evidence for Christianity because the theology predicts that Christians would be better. But yeah, as Trent concedes, there's a better version of all these arguments anyway called the meager moral fruits argument. And um, if you want to know more about that, I do have an episode about it. All right, double standards number four and five. Number four, ridiculing Christian censorship, but excommunicating atheistic heretics. So you recall before that when you point out bad atheists, uh, people will say, oh, well, that even if that atheist was a sex offender or a really bad person, uh, that doesn't disprove atheism because atheism has nothing to do intrinsically with morality. There's atheists with all different kinds of morality. They'll say atheism is just about, it's only about lack of belief in God or that God does not exist. That is what atheism is only about. And they will then sometimes ridicule Christians who in the Middle Ages, uh, you know, excommunicate people. Uh, heretics are exiled. You know, people are treated as heretics, excommunicated. There's no freedom of thought in Christianity. You have to sign dogmatic, like at a college, you have to sign a statement of faith. And if you deviate from that, you'll be fired. You're a heretic. That Christianity has to have thought police to make sure everyone thinks the same way, whereas atheists are free thinkers. But I think that's actually a big double standard because especially recently, in the past few years, you have cases of atheists imposing secular liberal dogma far beyond the mere claims that there's you know no evidence for god or something like that uh two examples of this one would be stephen woodford from rationality rules he had a controversy i say it was a year or two ago it was a little while ago 
where he was denounced by the atheist community of Austin uh, here in Texas because Woodford posted videos where he questioned the fairness of transgender women competing with biological women. So biological males who identify as women competing against biological women in athletics, he questioned whether that was fair and gave arguments against that. And against that, the ACA said that he was transphobic. Uh, they, they denounced him, weren't going to have anything to do with him. And he replied to that. And there's a lot of atheists who will say that on the one hand, no, atheism is just about the lack of evidence for the existence of God. But then they'll denounce other atheists for espousing views that they'll say are, are wrong, uh, views that you, you can't hold. You can't be a good atheist if you hold these views. Uh, this has happened with Richard Dawkins as well, that Dawkins has, has said things uh, and things that are, that are awful. Uh, things that maybe maybe I would agree with and even things that I wouldn't necessarily agree with. And atheists have uh, denounced him, say that he's misogynistic, that he's transphobic, uh, and say that they don't want to have anything to do with him, we're not going to have him at a conference, don't read his books. Sounds a lot like Christians, uh, where for these atheists, it's not just lack of belief in God. They're also enforcing a secular liberal ideology that you must hold to, and if you don't agree with it, there will be consequences for you, even things like a kind of secular excommunication. So they should be aware of that. And if they try to ridicule Christians for doing that, a lot of atheists uh, do, the, do the same thing. Instead, we should all be free to put the best ideas out there and test them. So the double standard here is that atheists will criticize Catholics for, um, for instance, excommunicating people or burning heretics at the stake, and at the same time, they will disinvite Richard Dawkins from speaking at like a radio station. You know, the atheist community has heretics like Stephen Woodford and, um, you know, the Catholic Church has heretics, you know, so that's a big double standard. I mean, no one, least of all Stephen Woodford, would claim that there's any kind of moral equivalence between these two things. So Trent brought up the medieval treatment of heretics earlier. And this is from an episode, an older episode, called The Gruesome History of Christian Torture. The historian Otto Friedrich, in his book The End of the World, recounts a story from 1234, where a celebration of a new saint was briefly interrupted by the burning alive of an old woman. Quote, The canonization of Saint Dominic was finally proclaimed. Bishop Raymond de Vega was washing his hands in preparation for dinner when he heard the rumor that a fever-ridden old woman in a nearby house was about to undergo the dying ritual. The bishop hurried to her bedside and managed to convince her that he was a friend, then interrogated her on her beliefs, then denounced her as a heretic. He called on her to recant. She refused. The bishop thereupon had her bed carried out into a field, and there she was burned. A bystander wrote, And after the bishop and the friars and their companions had seen the business completed, they returned to their refectory and, giving thanks to God and the blessed Dominic, ate with rejoicing what had been prepared for them. End quote. The last known heretic to be killed by the Catholic Church was in 1826. So what exactly is the double standard in condemning that and then saying, oh, I don't want to have this YouTuber on my channel because we have political disagreements? Like, come on, man. You know, and I'm saying this as, as someone who thinks Stephen Woodford was treated a little unfairly in all this. But even Stephen Woodford would not say, I mean, he's the guy who was subject to all this terrible treatment. There's no way he would think there's a moral equivalence between the way that atheists have treated him and the way that Catholics treat their heretics. 
I have more to say about this, but what I was going to say actually connects with his last double standard, so I'll save it for then. All right, here is the last one, the last double standard. It's okay to criticize Christians, but it's not okay to criticize Muslims. This is something I've always found fascinating, that you'll read atheistic bloggers. They'll talk about how Christians want to take over this country. They want to uh, force people to abide by the Old Testament laws. And there will be all, you think about Margaret Atwood's The Handmaiden's Tale, you know, that if Christians somehow took over, they would enslave women and do all of these horrible things. And all of these examples live in their imaginations that they have not happened and they're nowhere near happening. Uh, most Christians just don't want to be involved with evil. We don't want to be involved in a same-sex wedding. There's plenty of businesses that will be involved. We just don't want to be involved in that or abortion or pornography. Just leave us alone in that regard. Uh, so I've noticed that there'll be all this criticism about Christianity as if it's trying to take away everybody's rights. And then radio silence on Islam where actually the closest thing to The Handmaiden's Tale would be how women are treated in Muslim countries. I don't even know what to say to this. Like, this is so divorced from reality. New atheism itself was in part a response to 9-11. I don't know if new atheism ever would have happened without 9-11. Is the critique of Sam Harris like, why won't you go after Muslims, Sam? Why won't you criticize Islam? <laughs> Richard Dawkins, Sam Harris, Christopher Hitchens, they never spoke about Islam. They never said a word about it. It was always off limits for them. What are you talking about, man? So one of those times that Dawkins was excommunicated, you know, in another baffling display of atheistic double standards has to do with his Islamophobia, like, you know, his alleged Islamophobia. So back in 2017, after Richard Dawkins had been disinvited, those who had disinvited him wrote, quote, we didn't know that he had offended and hurt in his tweets and other comments on Islam so many people. And then Richard Dawkins replied, quote, I have criticized the appalling misogyny and homophobia of Islam. I have criticized the murdering of apostates for no crime other than their disbelief. Far from attacking Muslims, I understand, as perhaps you do not, that Muslims themselves are the prime victims of the oppressive cruelties of Islamism, especially Muslim women. Does that sound like Islam is off limits? And by the way, that's just one quote. I mean, how much time do you have? Like, if we're going to talk about what Dawkins and Hitchens and Harris have said about Islam, the idea that it's off limits for atheists, like, what are you talking about? I mean, maybe if you're making a video about, like, liberal double standards, then this would make sense. But atheist double standards? Like, liberals routinely denounce atheists because of their alleged Islamophobia. There are some atheists who have become sensitive to those critiques and they've tried to make corrections for that. But as far as I can tell, the vast majority of atheists have no issue criticizing Islam. Islam is not off limits. We're usually the ones who are trying to say that other people have a double standard where, yeah, Christianity is fair game, but Islam is off limits. Atheists are the ones who are often pointing that out. I mean, what, is, what does Alex O'Connor have to say about Islam? What does Stephen Woodford have to say about Islam? Have they not said anything about it because it's off limits? Do they have nice flowery things to say about it? Like, literally, I, I actually don't know what you're talking about here. This is something I've always found fascinating, that you'll read atheistic bloggers. They'll talk about how Christians want to take over this country. They want to uh, force people to abide by the Old Testament laws. And there will be all—you think about Margaret Atwood's The Handmaiden's Tale, 
you know, that if Christians somehow took over, they would enslave women and do all of these horrible things. And all of these examples live in their imaginations that they have not happened and they're nowhere near happening. Uh, most Christians just don't want to be involved with evil. We don't want to be involved in a same-sex wedding. There's plenty of businesses that will be involved. We just don't want to be involved in that or abortion or pornography. Just leave us alone in that regard. I don't know what political circles he's running in, but he at the end he said, just leave us alone with pornography. Um, we're not shoving pornography down your throats. Plenty of Christians are looking it up on their own accord. But, you know, just this idea that like, oh, Christians, we just don't want to be involved with gay marriage. We would never try to get in the way of it or make it illegal or anything like that. Like, once again, I, I just, I don't actually know what you're talking about. Like, the idea that Christians are just these, like, principled libertarians that are like, if you want to get gay married, then that's your business. You know, <laughs> like, I would never try to use the government to try to, like, make it so gay people couldn't get married. Yeah, that's a, that's completely foreign to Christians. They just don't want to be involved. There was a panel a few years ago at Georgetown University where he's a humanist, Phil Zuckerman. Uh, he's not religious, a humanist. I don't know if he calls himself an atheist, but he's a humanist, believes in the value of human beings apart from God. Uh, was with Kirsten Powers and I think Russell Moore, uh, who's a Christian. And he was talking, and they were talking about how, you know, people, atheists will criticize Christians, but they won't criticize Islam. And in many cases, the reason is that they're afraid to criticize Islam because they know they could be threatened with violence. But they can criticize Christians all day long because Christians, except for a few radical examples, uh, Christians by and large are nonviolent. Uh, when they, when people say incredibly offensive things to them. So here's the clip. I absolutely agree that uh, it is okay for uh, those on the left to critique, mock, deride Christianity, but oh, Islam gets, Islam gets a free pass, which is so strange because if you care about women's rights, if you care about human rights, if you care about gay rights, uh, then you really, uh, uh, Islam is much more, of a, more problematic. Uh, sorry to paint Islam with a huge brush uh, and much more devastating. As an atheist, where on planet earth is the death penalty meted out to atheists? Right. It's it only in, I think, 24 Muslim countries. Um, where have human rights flourished the most? In Christ Christian nations. Where is uh, a tolerance the greatest in, in nations rooted in Christianity? So uh, when I look, I see Christianity as a great friend to secular culture. Uh, and I see Islam as much more of a threat, much more debilitating, much more, not, I'm not talking about Muslim individuals that I happen to sit next right. to on an airplane or are my neighbors. I'm talking about uh, the doctrines and, the, and those with the power to enforce those doctrines in the form of Sharia law. So I agree with you. So the question you're asking though is, is why? Right. Because, because, I mean, this was the Bill Maher, Ben Affleck, uh, mm -hmm. Sam Harris kerfuffle as well. Um, and I would say uh, two things. I know what keeps me uh, uh, from critiquing Islam on my blogs is just fear. I, I've got three kids, so mm -hmm. um, I know that I can say anything about Christianity or Mormonism, and I'm not living in fear, which is a testament to Christianity and Mormon. I mean, mm -hmm. that's wonderful. Thank you. That you, you're not, you know, I can write on my blog all kinds <laughs> of things. Uh, I'm not totally sure, but uh, I think Ben Affleck might be a Christian. I know Bill Maher and Sam Harris are atheists. So based on what Trent is saying, who do you think was on which side? You know, Because atheists say that Islam is off limits. So if there's some kind of debate about whether criticism of Islam is Islamophobic inherently or something like that, then... Who's going to be on which side? Well, according to Trent, I guess it's the atheists who are going to be, you know, bashing you over the head, calling you Islamophobic for pointing out, you know, all those things that Zuckerman just pointed out. But of course, it was, you know, Mr. Religious Bill Maher and uh, Sam Harris. This is not off limits in the atheist community. Like everything that Phil Zuckerman just said is completely boilerplate. Like these are all common talking points in the atheist community. I've heard everything that Zuckerman just said like a thousand times from atheists. 
So that is the end of his video. And I did just want to say that I do like the Council of Trent podcast and I like his YouTube channel. I would recommend it. You know, he talks about philosophy of religion. He has good interviews. He has good guests. He's worth responding to. Yeah, I mean, I, I absolutely recommend his channel and uh, his interviews and his debates. If you're watching this on YouTube and you'd rather listen over podcast, you can find Counter Apologetics or Walden Pod on Spotify, iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever else they keep podcasts. So thank you for listening. I've been Emerson Green, and I will talk to you next time.